thanks for joining us for episode two of the Laser Podcast. This week we'll discuss spider silk coated in carbon nanotubes, the Voyager 1 space exploration, new super accurate atomic clocks, and buildings that melt cars. Good evening, this is the Laser Podcast. I'm Cameron Copas, and this week we have Savan and Matt. Hi guys! Hey guys! Alright, you guys want to give your own introductions? Go ahead. Sure, sure. I went to ASU with Cameron. We both did our majors in material science engineering for our bachelors, um, as well as for our masters. I currently work in the semiconductor industry, and I'm really excited to be here. My name is Matt Luger. I got my bachelor's in chemical engineering from UCSB, and I've been living out here in Arizona for the past two years. All right, cool. It's great to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me on your show. (laughs) (laughs) So forced. I guess we can just start off with the first paper. Do we want to do the atomic clock first or the carbon nanotubes? Carbon nanotubes. Okay. I think the basic premise of the paper was researcher... Oh, first let's start with the name. Okay, Uh, this is an article from Science Daily. So it comes from a press release on the Florida State University website, and it's a spider silk coated with carbon nanotubes has multiple surprising uses. So again, it comes from Florida State, and the scientist is Eden Steven. Not to be confused with Eben Stevens. Yes. From our childhood. Yes. Okay. (laughs) No, Shia LaBeouf did not, was not involved with this research even a little bit. So I guess what they did was this this guy at Florida State went around the lab. Or the way the press release talks about it is he just went around the lab collecting spider webs from the corners. I guess it doesn't talk about growing spider webs. I mean, or what kind of that. like working conditions are those? I mean, if you think about it, like it's, really, it's, it's Florida though. So I mean, you can probably just go outside and some giant spider web because they're bigger there. <laughs> <laughs> I was there last year. I saw the largest dragonfly in my life has to be eaten by larger spiders, right? Is that how? Exactly. That's how, That's how it works. Science I mean, works. evolution. <laughs> evolution works. Is everything in Florida is bigger and more dangerous. It's true. Yeah. Okay. For insects. Well, yeah. regardless. So my, my understanding is that the scientist was not able to get funding, so he uh, decided to gather some materials he already had in his lab. Did he so, say that? No. I oh, just made okay. that up. All right. So we're making things up about this research. But That's it cool. sounds Whatever. legit, though. Yeah. Because well, it's basic research, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. It's, it's proof of concept. But I guess they, they coated these spider webs with uh, carbon nanotubes, and it doesn't. it's not really specific. Um, this is more of a press release. We actually couldn't get the article. I guess our somehow our university access doesn't have access to nature communications, so that's kind of strange. That is interesting. Or maybe just not this issue for some reason, but it seems like they just put water in with spider webs and then ran it through a bunch of carbon nanotubes and they stuck to it. See, look what it says. He said... He was hiking around at the lab using a stick to gather webs. I mean, the cleaning lady has been doing awful these last few weeks, <laughs> clearly. Well, they don't clean in the labs. They're not allowed to. Oh, exactly, or else how would you get specimens for this kind of research? <laughs> I, you know. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. It's not a tropical country, but maybe the just spiders like, are there to prevent malaria. Maybe, or just releasing spiders into the lab to grow specimens. <laughs> it's my understanding that he applied the nanotubes 
to the spider webs using a drop of water? Are carbon nanotubes soluble in water? I mean, carbon nanotubes in and of themselves aren't really miscible. Um, but one thing that's oh. important to know, carbon nanotubes is when they, they're grown, they're grown in like bunches and bundles and you grow all kinds of nanotubes at once. So you could have like a bunch of nanotubes in the solvent, um, but not necessarily decomposed. If that's what you're asking. Yeah, they're not water-soluble in general. No. You have no, to but coat them with something in order to get them. Well, you have to have some fluid for them to sit in to be able to work with them, obviously. Usually that's like IPA, isopropyl alcohol, or, some, or anything else just lying around your lab. Some sort of solvent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I guess, I guess it's, uh, it's probably important to say that Savan has done research in carbon nanotubes. Oh, I have. Yes, I, I have done some work uh, with a carbon nanotube lab. That's my, my little contribution there. So they coated these spider silk, or the spider silk with carbon nanotubes, and... I mean, I doubt that they're aligned to the silk thread from the spiders. No, yeah. probably not. It's probably just, just, sitting just stuck on there. On there. Right. Like, I guess dust sticks to, car- sticks to spider webs, too, and bugs, so... <laughs> <laughs> so well, that I mean, probably works. I mean, they mentioned that spider silk is tough, but becomes soft when exposed to water. Okay. All right, all right. So I guess we so, should talk about real applications of this, or why they did it. Um... To clean up the lab. To clean up the lab first and foremost. But <laughs> after that, carbon nanotubes have a lot of interesting features that can't really be used because you can't make one big long string of them. Mm-hmm. So maybe that they were trying to stick them to a medium to try to get it get a longer string. Um, um, I don't know. I mean, in terms of carbon nanotube synthesis, I mean, you have very specific a specific set of conditions. Um, from the gas that you use, from the temperature, from the source that you're using to draw the carbon. So so it wouldn't make as much sense to me think that they would try to make one big long one with that. Yeah, that's that's why they, I think they did. <laughs> oh, then I misunderstood you said initially. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I mean, it looks like they're just trying to enhance... I mean, spider silk is known to be... to have some very interesting tensile properties. That's true. It's right? It's pretty... it's strong in tension. I mean, and it has um, its, like, adherence... Yeah. adhesion properties... Um, I'm not as familiar with that, but I'd imagine it'd just be interesting to see. And I know it it conducts heat well, which is actually just something I saw in the related articles section of this uh, of this article on this page. <laughs> but apparently, spider silk can conduct heat, which is something that carbon nanotubes are pretty severely lacking. It's heat mm-hmm. conduction ability, mm-hmm. so they can some of them conduct electricity fine, but not heat. I mean, it depends on... I mean, not to go too in-depth on carbon nanotubes, but it really depends on the type of nanotube you're working with. I mean, you have some nanotubes that are electronically semiconducting, and you have some that are electronically metallic, and that gives you a completely different range of properties, depending on what you have. Okay. Well, in bulk, though, not not a particular nanotube isn't thermally conductive, but a, a bunch of carbon nanotubes won't be very thermally conductive, because there's nothing for phonons to propagate along if they're not the same nanotube, right? Um... Really depends on my electronic type because phonons really back to like excitons and stuff. Okay. And I feel like we're probably getting a little bit off topic. Maybe maybe a little bit in depth. Um, I guess they did say that this the overall nanotube coated spider silk is conductive electronically, and uh, they they drew a little FSU with Clever. with nanotube coated uh, spider silk. I don't know how big it is. It's, there's no scale on this. It looks more like a microgram than a picture, but. Who knows? There's no scale on this picture, on this image. <laughs> um, I don't really know what this study on its own has applications in. Do they mention it towards the bottom? And they talk about stuff like nano-actuators, oh. so motors so, and things like that. So like converting energy able, to motion. So being able to use the spider silk as a non-contaminating um, substrate that they can uh, 
use in lieu of some of the other more dangerous, oh, sorry, some of the other more dangerous chemicals. Um, they don't appear to have very many um, specifics in this article about uh, conduction of these, about heat these strands. Yeah. Okay. They did mention electrical conduction, though, correct? Yes. All right. Well, well it's, a very, it's very interesting in the concept itself. I mean, you're taking something that's from nature, um, like a very, I mean, to be fair, carbon is found in nature. But you're taking something that is like a really in-depth research area, at least in material science, like carbon nanotubes. It's pretty new. People don't know that much about it. I mean, it's known, but not as well known. Then you're taking like spider silk from the corners of your office <laughs> and trying to like mesh them together. I think that's really interesting. Just, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. I just don't know. I think it would. I think it'd be better if they if they were able to like filter out the nanotubes. You could more specifically say like you could control the nanotubes. They, they might and their have, properties. They might have put selected nanotubes on there instead of just all nanotubes. You're right. They probably could have. I mean, but that in itself, like filtering nanotubes, is its own research field because it's not a sim to do. Um, but I think that would be that would give far more inclusive, straight to the point. Like it's this much times stronger than steel in this direction, or something like that. Or this much more conductive than you know copper in whatever orientation. I think that'd be interesting to find out yeah. more, uh, more on. Let's see if we can get anything from the the paper. Get it at home. Dang it. Whatever. See, it looks like they did a little more in depth characterization. Yeah, they, did, they did some characterization analysis. That's good. Strong affinity of amine functionalized multi walled uh, carbon nanotubes for spider silk. Oh, okay. So that was mostly about how well that amine functionalized multi walled carbon nanotubes are. So I guess we have to explain what all of that is. What is what is uh, amine well, I mean, functionalized mean, Savan? Well, I mean, carbon nanotubes, you can functionalize them in that you remove a number of carbons along the wall and you add in a different element. So, or a functionalizing group. So it's like it was stuck, it's just a carbon nanotube with stuff stuck to it on the outside. Essentially. Basically. Yeah. But stuff that therefore changes its properties, right? Yeah. So. So an amine is. And amines, amine. I mean, they're basically organic compounds, right? Yeah, what amine, is. Like what is amino. Amine? I don't know. Mean is a NH3 group, I believe. That sounds about right. How many engineers does it take to find out? Oh, no, it's a nitrogen and three pulse. So, like an NH3 type group, right? Looks like it. I mean, it's an orga organic compound. Yeah, okay. So, NH3, ammonia. So, yeah, just any derivatives of ammonia. Okay. Um, so, that's pretty interesting that you have. I wonder if other things, other types of functionalized nanotubes stick to the, these, stick to spider silk. Well, I wonder what in spider silk it's sticking to, right? Yeah, we don't know about that mechanism either. Not as much. But it's something definitely to look into. Yeah, that's pretty cool. You should probably mention where this article can be found for those okay. who want to read more right. about it, right? Okay, the, the article is in uh, Nature, in Nature Communications, published in 2013, probably September 2013. And the title is... Oh, August. Oh, August 2013. Wow, we're late. The title is Carbon Nanotubes on a Spider Silk Scaffold by Eden Stephen, and I guess the PI is James S. Brooks. So definitely look into that if you want more details on the yeah. mechanisms, on the characterization they did in their conclusion. Doing some proof of concept sensor and actuator demonstrations. Looks very interesting. Okay, that is which is why we really interesting. Which chose is, to talk about it. Yes.
for the next topic, maybe let's go to one that we actually read a little bit more about <laughs> <laughs> instead of just making it up as we go along. Yes. Um, all right. How do you feel about discussing NASA's Voyager 1 leaving the solar system? That's finally. 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 It's been, what, 30, 40 years? 40 almost. years? Well, all these Wait. false alarms. <laughs> 35 years, true. I believe. That's the point of making all these false alarms. Like, make up your mind. Like, is it or isn't it? For now, it for sure is, which is what the big fuss is all about. 36 years ago, Voyager 1 was launched. Launched in 1977, the same year that Star Wars was released, actually. Hey, look at that. That's a sign, if anything, right? That's pretty amazing. <laughs> okay, so yeah, this... Finally, this has all been all over the news lately. Finally, the Voyager 1 has left the solar system. Officially. Has left the building. (laughs) Um, And I think it's kind of a joke, all the hype, because we've seen the same hype a dozen times. Um, There's an XKCD comic about, about it about how many multiple times the, the Voyager has left the solar system. And it's it's almost a joke at this point. Because first of all, we said, oh, when, when it passes uh, Venus's orbit, then it was out of the solar system. Then when it passed Pluto, again, it was out of... The, well, probably not, because that was in the 70s when Pluto was a planet. So when it passed oh. Pluto, I think there were... <laughs> not there just were the dwarf stuff. <laughs> there were people talking about, oh, it left the solar system. Then when it left the termination shock. Then when it got into the, what, helio... Heliosphere. When, then, yeah, then it was in the heliosphere. Then when it hit the heliopause, and now when it finally is out of the heliopause. So I guess it'd be important to describe the diagram we're looking at right now. I don't actually know very much about it. Well, I mean, just reading it <laughs> off, right? I mean, it, we, it, it shows our solar system, um, and around our solar system is a termination shock area, which looks pretty round or spherical in its nature. And then around that... Well, explain what that is. That's oh, this diagram. Point. in the Oh, the article we're talking about is in the New York Times. Uh, that's the article we were referencing mostly. And it says and the source was from Science and NASA. Yes, there was a paper published in NASA about this. Or in... <laughs> by NASA. <laughs> in Science Magazine about this. And the, uh, the article that we're taking this from is called In a Breathtaking First, NASA's Voyager 1 Exits the Solar System. That's by Brooks Barnes. And again, that's in the New York Times. So... Yeah, so, so the plot, or the the, <laughs> the cartoon, has a, a little solar system flying through interstellar space. To be assumed, there's no, like, motion. That's true. Well, I think those are there motion are. lines. Yeah, there's yeah. plenty of are them. Are you sure those don't, like, like, whatever. Okay. Not important. No. <laughs> it's not a topographic map. No, it's not. And we're <laughs> so all the, for that. The termination shock is where, where the boundary where the solar wind drops below the speed of sound, according to this diagram. So the, the sun is shooting out particles all the time. They're all going pretty fast. Uh, <laughs> and that's that's the solar wind. So when, I guess, when that drops below the speed of sound, that's the, the exiting the termination shock area. Or Just, the termination shock is getting out of that area. So it's probably similar to leaving the speed of sound if you're in a jet that's going faster than the speed of sound. Sure, that would make sense. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a... Uh, particle physicist. I'm not a particle physicist, but I don't think that they study space. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not an astronomer. You look lost for words. I tried to supply them. Sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a cosmologist or an astronomer, so I don't really You don't know. do makeup. <laughs> that too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the termination shock area is encapsulated by the um, the heliosphere, which is defined as a bullet, bullet-shaped region created by the collision of interstellar and solar winds. So interstellar winds would be solar winds coming from other stars and... 
solar winds would be coming from our star. I'd imagine. Right? Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, of course. <laughs> so that's where they're hitting, and that's the heliopause. That's the very boundary. That's the boundary. So yeah, part of that is like the all of this. these solar winds are almost protecting our solar system from the interstellar winds, from all the stuff from other, other solar systems, so stuff is bouncing off of it, just because it's all radiating outwards from the sun mm-hmm. as we fly through space, mm-hmm. as the whole solar system flies through space. It's kind of weird to think about that. Usually you think of like Earth as a reference point, or sun as a reference point, but everything is moving around super fast. Very so quickly, yeah. It's kind of cool. It's relative to something else, right? Relative to something else, yeah. And I'm sure the, the galaxy, yeah, we're moving relative to the solar system, and the solar system is moving relative to the galaxy. It's very meta, like Inception. <laughs> <laughs> we have to go deeper. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, because now we're in interstellar space, right? Well, Which is the big yeah, thing to do. Yeah, that's great. That's pretty cool, I think. But I don't know, I mean, is this, now that it's officially out of interstellar space... It'll be cool to see what kind of stuff is in the solar wind that's out there. That is the first time we've ever made it out. Yeah, it's amazing. This is the first thing from Earth that's ever been out that far. (laughs) Well, I think what's interesting is the fact that, yeah, it's the first thing that's out there, but it's, I mean, it's running on what, 40, less than 40 kilobytes? Of memory? Less than 40 kilobytes of memory, yeah. According and, and to a previous article? Yeah. It takes forever for, for us to even get information about that far. I think but, it's approximately 17 hours to get any input from the spacecraft. 17 hours. Which, while amazing, yeah. is using, like, 70s technology. Yeah, that's using 70s technology. This The same article has said that it is using an 8-track to record data. Or it has an 8-track and 40 kilobytes of memory. Or less than 40. Which is crazy, I mean, because if you look at our phones and our computers, I mean, we have, what, 100, 1,000, 10,000 times that memory storage space in the palm of our hands. Yeah, it's awesome. On top of that, it's actually sending back data with a 23-watt transmitter. That's about the equivalent of a refrigerator light bulb. So that's not even like a normal light bulb, a 40-watt light bulb. Correct. Unless you're using CFL. A very weak (laughs) transmitter, giving back very, very valuable information after a 17-hour trip. Yes. I mean, if you think about it, it wouldn't be terribly hard to do a Voyager 1.2 or 0.5 or 2.0. There is a Voyager 2. I saw the Voyager 2, but I didn't know when it was sent out. The Um, same time. It was sent out the same year, 1977, mm -hmm. but just in a different direction. I think the Voyager 1 looked at Saturn and the Voyager 2 looked at Jupiter. Oh, but see, my my point was saying with today's technology. Oh, a new one. Like the new and improved Voyager with all the data, all the watts, wattage. To be powered in all the memory. You know? All the memory? All the memory. Yeah. So then 30 years from now, they could laugh at us with the measly space that we had. <laughs> I don't know what like deep space exploration stuff is planned right now, or what's in progress. I'm not up to date on NASA plans. Neither am I. You need to ask the internet, ask your contact. or ask Neil deGrasse Tyson or something. <laughs> I bet he would know. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things is Voyager 1 is going to continue going deeper and deeper into space. I think it's scheduled to stop transmitting around... 2025, but in about 40,000 years, it's going to come relatively close to a, one of the stars. Another star. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's amazing. It's not using very much power now, but it was using a lot more power. We have most of the instruments, like, shut off. Mm-hmm. What, I don't know what's activated still. What is still activated? I think the cameras are turned off. I think it's reading, like, particle levels, because it talked at one point about, like, plasma, or talked about was, particles. Yeah, it talked about particle density. That's how we knew we were out of the solar system to be in with. Right. It's my understanding it's also looking at the frequency of the plasma. Mm-hmm. So it has some instru- instruments to read that. Very interesting. Okay, yeah. One of the articles that I read actually had a, a clip that recorded the sound of deep space. It's kind of interesting. 
Let's see. It's a lot like static, I guess. <laughs> it's a lot like static. Oh, well, that's too bad. Well, not much going on out there. There's not just aliens talking. I guess Seti would have found that. Not right? too much okay. audio. Yes. Okay, here I found what's what's activated still on Wikipedia. Imaging system is disabled. Radio science disabled. Infra infrared interferometer is disabled. The UV spectrometer. Triaxial fluxgate magnetometer, so that records magnetic fields. The and these are all still working. Still or? working, yeah. Okay. Low energy charged particle instrument measures the energy differential energy fluxes of ions and electrons. And the cosmic ray system and the plasma wave system are still activated. I mean, this so, is all valuable to us to give us a better picture of interstellar space, right? Yeah, yeah. It's all it's cool, I and mean, we don't know anything about what's out there. They've already said that. The, the density of particles out there is a lot more than they had expected to begin with. So farther, more dense, is more what you're dense, saying? More dense, yeah. That's very interesting. More dense than what, though? What they expect? More or? dense than what we expected. Hmm. So there's more stuff in space, in interstellar space, than we expect. Kind of cool. So what do you guys think? Are, are, is it out of the solar system this time for real? I say yes. I'll put five bucks on it. All right. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty embarrassing at this point, right? And they say that they have information to support it, so I'm inclined to believe them. That's true. And I think it's not NASA's fault. NASA didn't say that it's out of the solar system. They just said it's out of this, and everybody interpreted it as as it being out of the solar system. So People care more about like captions and titles than they do about the details. Yeah, yeah. Typically. I, I still think we should go with the... Uh, the Brion Zone version of interstellar space. So in, in like... Really? We're doing reciprocal space now? Yes. Yes. <laughs> is that what's going on? This is crystallography. When we're talking Single about crystal. a crystal of atoms, the Brion Zone is the distance between the nucleus and the next closest nucleus, so half of that distance. So once you're closer to the next one, then you're out of the Brion Zone for the first So atom. your point was to make this simpler or to <sighs> make right, more work? I'm not pick really the sure. the closest star, or the star that Voyager 1 is heading towards, and when it's halfway there, then we can say it's out of the solar system for sure. And confuse there people no further. no questions. So that'll be about 20,000 years from now. So. 20, is that what this calculation is? Or? Um, no, I think in one of the articles it said that it would oh. come close to another star in 40,000 years. Okay, so, so 20,000 uh, years, keep, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> so to put this into context, you know, this Voyager 1 has traveled further than any other man-made object. That's Ever. correct, right? Yeah, oh, that's absolutely. It's so 11.7 billion miles. So to put that into context, um, what percentage of a light year is that? I have no idea. Well, let me it's... let me grab my calculator and do the uh, <laughs> do the calculation. Matt's full of crap. He already did this. It's up on the screen. He <laughs> fully grasps is... how podcasts work. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's good. He did. He, he's I did. The, I did the typing noises. Yeah. It was classic. It is point two percent of one light year. Zero point two percent. Of a light year. That's how far zero point two. Yeah. That's what you said. Yeah, that's what he said. With but an was, added zero. I, I like to put the Cameron. zero before the decimal. And I think zeros matter. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It's not a significant figure, but it's easier to understand. It, so zero point two percent of one light year. Wow. And just to think that some stars are thousands Much. of light years away. Uh, well, oh. I think they're all thousands of light years away. <laughs> Even incredible the distances. Yes. Uh, it's it amazing. Well, to connect to this story, I mean, there's a little more lighthearted aspect to this, and that um, in a recent launch... Well, we could say, speaking of other things that have gone further than <laughs> ever before... <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
That's too sad. A frog recently made a, a so, giant leap for frog kind. <laughs> so I don't know if you heard, but poor Frank the Frog, as he's been dubbed, bravely sacrificed himself upon the Laddie, L-A-D-E-E, launch that recently occurred on September 6th. 2013. There's a great, or terrible, depending who you are, shot that shows Frank on the background of the the steam, the exhaust, the how do we want to the describe The explosion. This? The explosion. Frank was blown up. <laughs> he was it's literally terrible. blown away by this launch, by how awesome and, you know, intense it was. Um, so it's probably like this frog was on the lady rocket launch pad at the time of launch and so yeah there's this picture on discovery news and on the nasa lady flicker set and people didn't notice until later they were going through the pictures and they saw this frog in there and originally people thought oh might have been photoshopped in but nasa claims that no it's it's real it's an actual shot and it just has this frog silhouetted against the smoke of the explosion and you see the rocket lifting off in the background. Yeah, the frog in the image actually looks quite like a human. I thought it was an astronaut the first time I saw this image. <laughs> <laughs> just fell out of the spaceship. Uh, well, Bob, Bob hadn't quite gotten in the door before the spacecraft took off. I, but, think, uh, I think NASA checks for that now. <laughs> NASA, you got some explaining to do? Or orbital. This is orbital and NASA, so yeah. Oh. <laughs> I think they're a little bit more careful than that. This time. This time. <laughs> if I remember correctly, this isn't actually the first time that we've had a um, no. an extra astronaut on board, right? Trying to make it no. out into space. No. There's poor Brian the Bat um, that happened. I forget for which launch it was, but I mean, a similar type scenario, right? And he was on the pad or he was on the rocket. And the rocket launched and he somehow got captured by like all the images and, you know, it's a bat. He tried to like make it out into space and so... <laughs> I read an article about how, you know, some believe that Brian made it out to space and now he's out there as the first bat in space and a lot of hopefuls out there and who's to say they're they're wrong, aside from the realists. Can't say first bat in space though. You don't know what the Russians did. They did a lot of crazy <laughs> they sent dogs into space and cats. Bruce and... the bat. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So at least the first astronaut bat, so instead of cosmonaut. <laughs> and yep. Oh. Kind of makes me wonder, you know, at airports they have issues with birds, you know, flying in front of the airplanes, and they've come up with different devices to try and scare the birds off the runway. You know, some of the more primitive things being scarecrows. Um, at night, sometimes they use lasers. Sometimes they, they use, use lasers to scare birds off. <laughs> I Are believe you so. Yes. Did you see I, my impression was that they weren't very effective, but okay. especially not during the day. It probably attracts <laughs> cats. <laughs> Suddenly, the airplanes are going to start hitting cats, and it's, that's that's worse. <laughs> I don't know. They're going to get that red dot. They'll get it good. <laughs> so they use some some light based devices and some sound based devices. Um, things imitating small explosions, like shotgun blasts. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen we we know about the sound based bird deter deterrent. Yeah, there's there's a building on campus that has. At ASU. That constantly plays sounds of multiple birds of prey, just at random intervals, all oh, day yeah. long. It's like every 15 minutes it goes off and it plays like 10 birds of prey. Which, where is that? <laughs> I remember that. There's a few buildings that do it, but it's one of the engineering centers. The LSC, I think, right? The one that has that little... It's the one that looks like a video game level. 
classic. It's got all the like classic steel floors and the yellow tape with the black oh, lines through the it. Oh, the mechanical and engineering cement. ones. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Mechanical engineering stuff. That's like ah ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? You you caught it. it. I thought you said Matt did the animal impression. Kick kick jaw. I've I've been I've been picking it up. Slowly. Okay. All right. So, some of the other things they use for birds are... Wait, go back up. We're on Wikipedia on bird deterrence, and there's propane gas cannons to scare <laughs> birds away. Now They fired about uh, 150 decibels. To be fair, they what? would probably scare me as way, away like, also, because propane cannons? Yeah, it's a propane cannon. It's probably deep in the south. And it says propane cannons become ineffective after a short while. So the birds just get used to it, and then but the people move away. <laughs> I, <laughs> I would live next to an airport shooting off a oh, propane cannon You want a Bob's home and he won't move? <laughs> we have the answer for you, oh propane cannons. So it's, like, it's just like a potato gun is what the picture looks like. You know, some people were, are worried about sonic booms. I'm worried about propane cannons. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so, goodness. you know, they use a bunch of different things to scare off birds. They use radio-controlled aircraft, fireworks, um, birds of prey. But I guess the point I wanted to make with this was, you know, do they actually have things in place to try and scare away birds and other animals from these rocket launches? These are billion-dollar ventures. You think that uh, something as cheap as a propane cannon <laughs> or something along those lines would be worthwhile for I don't know. these big launches? I don't know. I know once, like, when they're ready to launch, you have to be really far away for a long time before they, they shoot it off because you don't want to get fried. Yeah. <laughs> All but, I know is I don't want another Frank the Frog sacrifice on our hands. Well, you need to write a letter to, my to NASA. To Please don't get, don't get Congress people involved in NASA. That, <laughs> that never ends well. Just write a letter to NASA themselves. Have some heart. Yeah. No animals were harmed in the filming of this launch, except Frank the Frog. Oh. And... Brian the Bat. Yes. Rest in peace. But ladies launched. That's cool. That's a cool thing. Is it what lady is, uh, or is it laddie? I think it's lady. Really? I thought it was laddie. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't ever laddie. hear anyone heard it. But I, I think this is NASA, not the Scottish Space Agency. So I'm going to go with lady. <laughs> well, they messed that one up, but okay. <laughs> lady it is. L-A-D-E-E. Sounds more lady. So what is the purpose of the... Laddie or Lady mission. It's a, it's a moon <laughs> exploration. I wrote it down. It stands for Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environmental Explorer. So it has a bunch of instruments on it. Particle uh, counters. It's going to particle counters, yeah. <laughs> well, one of them is called a dust... I don't have any more specifics on it. I didn't look into that enough. But it's that's the name of the instrument, is the dust detector. Can I say something really politically incorrect? Sure. So just like a typical maid, they just attached her to the rocket. They got it, there's dust the there. Dust there at the corner. Dust detector. Oh. 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 Please don't put that on. It's too late. The cleaning lady. The cleaning, yeah, the cleaning lady. The so, one that should have been in the lab for the spider webs is now on the moon for the particles. Yep. Okay, so what this what this ship is going to do is it's going to go around Earth a few times, which it already did. Then it's going to go around the moon a few times and get real close to the moon. I think 12 miles off the surface of the moon it's going to orbit. It's quite close. And I think that's what I what I read. And it's going to measure stuff about the environment. So it's got a mass spectrometer, a UV-Vis spectrometer. Hmm. And uh, it's actually cool because they're testing out a laser communications terminal. This is <laughs> goes back to the last one. 
radio is too slow. <laughs> I mean, like you said, it takes, it takes, what was it, 22 hours? I think it was 17. Oh, 17 hours yeah. to get signals from Voyager. And from for like the Mars rovers, it was taking 14 minutes one way. So you would see a picture on the screen and you'd say, okay, Mars rover, go forward. And you wait 14 minutes for it to get the signal. And then it moves forward and then it sends back. So Move to so, V12. Yeah, 28 minutes later, Fishing. you get, okay, we've moved forward a tiny bit. That's like got to be insane. So this this is testing out a light laser communications terminal. Mm. So they're going to communicate via light, which is significantly faster than radio. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're I, waiting for I my object. input on that. I object. <laughs> I, well done. I don't, I don't think you're right. Well done, everybody. Yes. Good plan. I'm glad to know that you agree that light is faster than radio. Anytime. Oh. Anytime. Well, that's almost that's like a cool. cell tower in space, yeah. I don't think cell towers are light, though. I mean... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, the metaphor oh. breaks down a little bit. I mean, it's a it's a repeater. Okay, okay, could be used in space. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We that got makes you. sense. We're all I get it now. I get it. Sorry, I'm just I wasn't on. You uh, were on the radio wave and not the light wave yeah, frequencies we're, that we're were happening. We're on different frequencies. Oh. They're different wavelengths. But um. <laughs> So on the clock. Oh, oh, I'm on the clock for this. I get it. That's funny because we're talking about a new atomic clock that is accurate to one second in a billion years. A billion years is a long time. By what that does that time, even mean? Oh, well, it's a I, second in a billion years. Truthfully, I don't know what that means. Okay. I'm not a clockologist. Like that sounds really impressive. If only I understood better what it meant. <laughs> Things like, Cameron has not. An astrologist. A cosmologist. <laughs> a particle physicist. A cosmologist. Or a clockologist. <laughs> Are you all taking notes out there? This is important stuff. Yeah, well, I'm not a few things. I'm not more than a few things. <laughs> anyway. So what is the deal with this clock? So it the, the title of the paper is An Atomic Clock with 10 to the minus 18 instability. So that means in... 10 to the 18 ticks, it's going to be one tick off. That's one quintillion ticks. For all you numerologists out there. (laughs) Just turn your numerology book to (laughs) one quintillion and tell us. Actually, if you are a numerologist and you know if if this has any significance, I would really like to know. (laughs) Well, I mean, it says like this. It says, meaning that if there were a variation in the clock's ticking, it would show up at about the 18th decimal place, meaning that it's quite accurate. It's very accurate. It's the bottom line, right? Yes, it's a very accurate clock. Do you know how this compares to previous atomic clocks? Previous atomic clocks have been... All right, the, the standard right now is a microwave clock, and I think that's 10 to the minus 6 instability. So at 1 million... What? He was he was he was prepping you for I this was paragraph. Prepping you for this next paragraph. <laughs> but it's good that Factor you know this. of ten. No, no, no. All right, this is different. <laughs> this is different. So, okay, the, so tell us, please. This, I think this is cheating that we have the article up while we're talking. Regardless. <laughs> <laughs> so the 
Yeah, it is, it's ten times better than the best atomic clock we have out there right now, and it's many times better than the SI standard second. So I think the standard second right now is, ten, is 10 to the 7 or 10 to the 8 or something, but it's certainly not 10 to the 18. And it's because that one uses microwave oscillations, and this is optical. So we've had optical atomic clocks for a while. Um, Can you, do you know the difference between the two? One of them uses optical light, and the other uses <laughs> microwaves. Genius! But what does that mean? It's, it's the, the frequency that they use to excite the... or to trap the, the atoms, yeah. So, so it's a smaller wavelength. So the app, you know how, all right, you actually, this is why we need you here for this section. Oh. Uh, optical tweezers. Sure. All right. Saman didn't read up on optical tweezers. She has a look of shame on her face at the yeah, moment. She's covering it's her. Been, it's been so long. Okay. Anyway. If I would have with, known. <laughs> if you had read the paper beforehand. I read oh. five other papers. Anyway, the way the clock works is that. I this. They have ytterbium atoms that are cooled to 10 microkelvin, and that's really, really cold, so they have to use optical cooling. Uh, that's the individual atoms, so that's it's a different temperature is measured a little bit differently for indep- independent atoms. I mean, that's to slow them down, right? Well, no, so yeah, it's to slow them, them down. Yeah. So they cool these, these ytterbium atoms down really, really cold so that they're slow. Sorry, ytterbium? Ytterbium. Y-B. Okay. Ytterbium. Okay. And then when they're really, really cold, they drop them into this laser. And this laser is at 578 nanometers, so that's like a yellow-green laser, so that's why it's optical. Mm -hmm. Microwaves would be tens of thousands of nanometers, so that's a lot more space for them to move. So these ytterbium atoms are actually stuck. It's it's similar to an optical tweezer technique. They're, They're stuck at one... Point, and they can only oscillate inside that wavelength of mm-hmm. the, the laser's wavelength. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is, and that's pretty small. And then what they do is then they can measure how the atoms vibrate much more precisely, accurately. much more accurately. So that's how we got this super atomic precise clock? atomic clock. Yeah, why is this interesting? What, what practical so, applications do we have for this? Yeah, so right now we use atomic clocks for GPS and for physics experiments. Uh, without an atomic clock, you wouldn't be able to have any GPS at all because at a satellite, a GPS satellite is orbiting so far above the Earth and moving so fast that we actually have relativistic effects. Mm-hmm. Without being able to measure the time close enough, they won't know where people you are, are. Where you are, yeah, where people are mm-hmm. on the Earth. So you need the the more accurate your atomic clock is, the more accurate your GPS geolocation can be. Um, I actually read in the paper they said that with this. 10 to the minus 18 instability, you can resolve spatial, as a quote from the paper, uh, clock measurements at the 10 to the minus 18 level can be used to resolve spatial and temporal fluctuations of one centimeter in Earth's gravitational field. So your GPS could be accurate to one centimeter in elevation and probably even more in location on the Earth. Well, and it's like you, it's like you see on your phone, like if you're using maps or... Or what have you. I mean, it says accurate within three meters, for yeah. example. You know, but now... One centimeter. One centimeter. And that's far more accurate. That's a lot more accurate. This segment sponsored by Garmin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. But I think it's mostly useful for stuff like... I mean, you don't really care if, you're, if your cell phone is accurate to one centimeter. Because your cell phone's bigger than a centimeter. The government con- might care. The- <laughs> <laughs> for consumer applications. Sorry, guys. Yeah. 
For consumer applications, it's not that interesting. No. As long as your cell phone is accurate to five centimeters, probably about the size of your cell phone. No, your cell phone's way bigger than that. I mean, but that's like... But that's, regardless. I mean, it's not for consumer applications, right? No, it's for the it's far... It's for science and for space. You can't... We don't know how fast some of the rockets are going because we don't have clocks that accurate. Mm-hmm. Like Voyager 1, we don't know exactly how far away it is. But I mean, now you're, you're, I don't, I don't think that that's incredibly accurate because now you're, you're merging like 70s technology that they had yeah, with. That's what I'm saying. Like Their measuring clocks through then, space the, with. The clocks then weren't as good. Right. I mean, but then you could argue, what about the clocks now and how could we measure it? I mean, I think you're getting a little in over your head with that topic and application. I think it's doable. I just think that there's more things that would contribute to that inability or ability, depending on. Okay, it's for the future. For, for the, the future. future. So the Voyager 500. <laughs> We're only at two now, but okay. I like where you're going. <laughs> Launched in 40,000 years after Voyager 1 approaches the nearest star. Tune well, in hopefully next time. catch up. <laughs> um, it's useful for stuff like, probably stuff like uh, geology and that kind of thing. Seismology, maybe to measure how Thanks. the tectonic plates are moving and stuff like that. Yeah, That'd be interesting, that, actually. That's yeah. kind of cool. And again, for more accurate GPS, that's that's neat. Uh, but also for stuff like like particle physics, because particles travel really fast. I mean, there was that whole scare a year ago when we thought that neutrinos were going faster than the speed of light because somebody forgot to plug in a cable and the atomic clocks were misset. <laughs> And that, that, that was okay, at the first largest things first, is it plugged in? It, yeah. No? Was that, Try that. <laughs> was that really the root cause of that Yeah, it was something, was, something was misconfigured. Well, that's so was, somebody forgot to calibrate a atomic clock. That's what I have. I, I had some, a professor who worked with people at the LHC, worked on the, the experiments, and uh, according to him, it was that something was unplugged. That's hilarious. Yeah. And that's why they thought that neutrinos might travel faster than the speed of light. It was this whole big release. They didn't really publish the paper, but it was still a press release kind of thing. Sure. So people were kind of freaking out about that. Understandably. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, geopositioning, astronomy, relativity experiments. You can do a lot more fundamental physics because relativity depends on speed and accuracy of your clocks or measuring relativity. So that's kind of cool. It's all relative to how accurate you are. It's all relative to how accurate. That's a good way to put it. Savant. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. So for our yeah, that's yeah. last topic. Sure, last topic. So something a little more lighthearted. Well, I guess depending who you are. There's um, got to be a better transition than that. Oh, lighthearted. <laughs> <laughs> now you <laughs> get it. Uh, okay. Well done. Scratch that. You got to expect a, a, a lot of puns yes. when you're talking well, that's, to that's us. That's a good list to me, but... So recently, um, in the news, there was an article about how a, a building in London was reflecting the light in such a way that it was actually melting um, artifacts that were located on the street no, level. Cars. Cars? Yes. Specifically cars. Specifically, the, the first big news article was about a man's fancy sports car that had melted because he had parked it in the wrong spot. Clearly. <laughs> At the wrong time. And the whole idea is the light reflected so well off the building that it just diffracted back down to the car 
Um, so it essentially had, I mean, I don't know, what does the article say? Um, well, basically the shape of the building was a parabola, and they put mirrors on the entire inside. So it was on the focal point of the parabola. Exactly. Are they, the... are they actual mirrors, or was it like uh, just windows that are really reflective? I believe they were just windows that were very reflective, but when you're looking at that much surface area... Okay. It's, uh... With that intensity of light? All right. I think this is funny, because like... Not this the guy is, with the sports car. Yeah, not for the guy with the sports <laughs> car. But it's like, this is like a... It has to be parabolic shape for this to happen. Where sure. a parabolic that's reflector, that's why we have parabolic like satellite antennas and stuff, because mm-hmm. it collects all the stuff from all sorts of points and focuses it at one point. That's what that shape is. I mean, you also have, like, in football so. games, when they're talking across the field, they have those parabolically shaped... Sound dishes. Sound dishes, Yeah, so they right? can focus it on one microphone, mm-hmm. even though it's the sound from all sorts of different places. Right. That's what it's for. It's yeah. very interesting, yeah. So... This is kind of funny because this is the same rumor as like the Archimedes death ray where Archimedes supposedly built a giant mirror, a bunch of mirrors on top of a ship and was using it to melt or to start fires on other ships. But that was that was actually tested in Mythbusters once. Yeah, I and think I saw that episode. It's such an instigator. It was I mean? but it was I think the myth was busted, but now it's actually happening. Accidentally. Oh. Yeah, accidentally. So, so the, yeah, Mythbusters think, busted the myth. Yeah, I think that in the episode they were trying to catch a wooden boat on fire, and you know that's okay. It has to 454 be. Fahrenheit. What is that like 300 Celsius? Yeah, so it has um, to be pretty hot. So what did this? Get I to? mean, in, in this case, we're just melting the melting some plastic parts on a luxury car, and you know, singeing some hairs on somebody's head. <laughs> I think the temperature difference is. 130 Celsius, I think it said, right? As people have fried, I've heard reports of people frying eggs and, uh, of course, melting this car. Yeah, I don't think this is the first time that this has happened either. I think the same. Um, That's right. There's this. Uh, the same architect actually designed another building that had the same problem, and I guess in an interview. In an interview with The Guardian, he actually said, quote, I knew this was going to happen, but there was a lack of tools or software that could be used to analyze the problem accurately. See, that's funny, because the tool that you would use to analyze this problem is called math. (laughs) (laughs) And basic physics. It's... It's not complicated to see that this would happen. No, but as doing, in, to most people, doing that kind of math is very simple, and an architect should absolutely be able to do it. I don't know what software couldn't do it because well, I, mean, I can think of like the calculator that comes with your Windows computer, or <laughs> TI the yeah a TI eighty three calculator, yeah. maybe the Google search calculator. <laughs> It, it shouldn't be that complicated of a calculation. No, or to not consult at all. with an engineer who might know more on the subject, to be fair. Consult with anyone optical. Yeah. What I think is kind of funny is that this is a probably, you know, $100 million skyscraper at least. And you must have had, you know, hundreds, maybe even a thousand engineers working on the same project. Any one of them could have predicted that this was going to happen from the... Well, he's taking the credit for being the most unknowledgeable, saying, I knew this was going to happen, yet I did nothing to stop it. Especially because, according to this article, it's happened before with the same architect. This is this article we're actually talking about is on uh, Gizmodo. So not, not the most rigorous scientific source, but where's the, the one about... What's the title for the one about the multiple things? Okay, Gizmodo has a, an article titled, A Brief History of Buildings That Melt Things. And that's, that's by Kelsey Campbell Dolligan. It was posted on September 4th. And it goes through this one. This is the one that's making the news right now, um, but a few other ones. And where's, the, where's the one right now located? In London. In London, right? Yeah. It's called the 
Parabolic death rate of sunshine. Okay, parabolic <laughs> death rate of sunshine. We'll call it. That's going to be the new. Instead of the bean in Chicago, it's yeah. the parabolic death rate of sunshine. There we go. So it's it's better known as 20 Fenchurch Street or the Walkie Talkie. And it was designed by Raphael Vinoli, a Uruguayan architect who's based in New York. <laughs> All right. Go back to here. <laughs> so where? What was his? What was the previous building that he built that did this? You know, I'll try and pull it up for you. It's actually a really ugly building too. I don't like that kind of. It just looks like well, a big if mirror. You, if you can like see it past the rays. Yeah. Hey, look, Gizmodo has an article about Voyager leaving the solar system. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Gizmodo. Well done. So I guess back in 2010, he actually completed the Vidara Hotel in Las Vegas, and it was reported that the reflection from from the hotel was actually singeing the hair of people swimming in the pool. That can't be true. Well, it's a free haircut. I don't understand what they're complaining about. That's gotta be... Some people pay good money for this kind of thing. <laughs> Laser hair removal. Just yes. stand in this pool. Yeah. <laughs> That's gotta be an exaggeration. Singeing the hair is in quotes, and... I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, enough that a complaint was issued. Like, maybe it wasn't singeing hair, but enough that it was noticeable yeah. and, you know, something to complain about, to the, be fair. Okay, this this was in 2010, and they said that initially, they even, on that hotel, they even covered the windows with a light-absorbing solution. So why I don't know why you would design a building that's so reflective that you, you plan to cover it with something light-absorbing and that it's not light-absorbing enough. That's And then do it a second time in London. It's, it's like flabbergasting. Okay, this says that it would it would raise the temperature at the pool area more than twenty degrees on intense days. So this the hotel put up a sail like shade over so, the pool. So free jacuzzi is that is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, free pool heating. There you go. But I'm <laughs> sure that's uncomfortable for the people who are in it. It's kind of ridiculous. And to be fair, the individual that reported that his hair was being burned was a lawyer. So perhaps take that with a grain of salt. Oh. Did he actually report that, or is that a Okay, yeah. He's, the quote of the, from the lawyer is, I'm rubbing my head, and it felt like a chemical burn. I couldn't imagine what it could be. How would he know what a chemical burn is? <laughs> Can I just... Th- unless his background is in the... Well, I mean, if it enough. felt like a chemical burn, that's that's imagining what it could be. That's Maybe he was involved in a terrible accident. Maybe he represented someone who was involved in a terrible accident. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so there are some other buildings that, have, that this has also happened in. So this is 2013 at 20 Fenchurch Street. Um... Um, and one other thing that we should mention about um, the building at 20 Fenchurch Street was... Oh, hold on. oh, it wasn't on purpose. So the architect did know it. He says that this is due to... The the glare isn't due to a design flaw. It's due to the fact that a detail from Vinole's original plans was value-engineered out of the design during construction. Meaning that what? So they were too cheap. They were supposed to put up a bunch of balconies that would have broken up the light and stopped it from oh. being reflected. And then the... Builders decided not to do it because it was cheaper. And there you uh, go. So, okay. So this is a case of not trusting the guy who designed something to know what he's talking about. Guess we shouldn't have sold Vinoli under the bus so early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe we were too harsh on it. Poor guy. <laughs> okay, so some of the other buildings this happened in. Uh, wow. The Disney Concert Hall, 2003. It's actually a really cool building in, in L.A. Uh, it says a group of condo owners located adjacent to the building, said that the glare was boosting the temperature in their homes by 15 degrees, and somebody recorded a hot spot of 140 degrees in the sun. 140 degrees probably isn't that much hotter than, than de- L.A. temperatures. Depends if you're in Phoenix or not, right? Well, I mean, it's in L.A. Phoenix wouldn't is- get as excited, <laughs> right? 
Yeah, in, in Phoenix, 140 degrees. That's ah, nothing. Whatever. That's, that's getting in your car on a normal summer day. Yeah. Although I would be really upset if I had to air condition my apartment and it was 140 degrees inside. <laughs> that's kind of sign of a problem. Yeah. To be sure. So there was that one, and they they sued the, I guess, Disney, the, the manufacturers of the concert hall. Um, and so eventually they sanded it down to a matte finish instead of a mirror finish. I so guess that cost them about $90,000. That's kind of crazy. So I guess not the happiest place on earth for concerts? Oh, but it's... <laughs> It's cool. It's a really cool place. Well, it's no. cooler now. It's cooler now. Oh, that's true. <laughs> it's a neat place. <laughs> but it is very neat. Yes, neat looking very and neat. interesting, to be sure. I guess uh, nearby residents have warmed up to the idea of oh, having a concert hall nearby. Oh. oh. I like it. So I guess another building that this happened near was the... Um, I just I already Dara. mentioned that. Let's, let's start that one over. Oh, that—that's the pool. Yeah, and this is the most recent one. Okay, that's it. Oh no, that isn't the most recent one. So another building this happened to was the Museum Tower in 2013. Um, it was a 200 million dollar residential tower. Um, it was in Dallas, Texas, and the big deal about this one was it was right next to a uh, museum, I believe, or an art gallery. Yeah, the Nasher Museum. Yeah, the Nasher Museum. And it actually killed off bamboo foliage in one of the art exhibits. And the artist demanded that his piece be completely removed from the gallery, if I understand correctly. Is mm-hmm. that right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. So that kind of thing. You know, it's significantly affecting the you know, quality of life for the people nearby, whether that's residents, whether that's museums. The picture yeah. of this building, this one isn't a parabolic reflector, though. It just looks like a, a square apartment building with regular windows. So I wonder why it uh, it reflected so so much into the into there. That's a very good question. It might have been something to do with, like... Probably very pure, very clean. Very, very clean mirrors. Mean. Yeah, that's interesting. This is pretty bad, though. I don't know if this is true. It's just in the Gizmodo article that they say that the, the building refused to take responsibility for destroying the art exhibit and shining too much light, reflecting too much light into the museum. And so they've waged a PR campaign against the museum, and they've made up fake Twitter accounts to tweet out supporters for the building developers. Talk about desperate. Wow. Yeah. So Dallas City Council has changed the building code, but that building is still there. That's that's terrible. Well done, You're Dallas. destroying art. But all in all, I mean, very interesting stuff. You can see where science really affects your day-to-day life, where you can see it everywhere. You can um, see it because... Well, you can't see it because you're blinded by all these parabolic reflecting buildings with the exactly. glass windows. <laughs> exactly. But later on, you find out what was going on. And it's very interesting that even, what, in 2013, basic math and physics are still either ignored or... You know, unacknowledged, which is, I guess, are the same thing. I mean, in major, major, like, city edifices that later on have these kind of consequences. I mean, I think it's, I don't know what that says about our society, but I think there's probably room for improvement. Yeah. You know, maybe we can design a building big enough when that when Voyager's battery runs out, we can just shoot light at it and make it keep going. Oh my gosh. And if, it, if it, we just put solar panels on it, we can reflect light at the void. I don't think that would work. No. <laughs> we were talking about optical. We were talking about optical communications. Earlier. Yeah. So, bam. Yeah, there you done. go. All right. So, that's yeah. everything for today. And links to the articles that we discussed this week are available in the show notes. Available in the show notes. So if you want to get in contact with us, we have a website. It's laserpodcast.com. Twitter account is at laserpodcast. Facebook page is laserpodcast. And not surprisingly, the Google Plus page is also laserpodcast. 
So go to any of those. You can send angry emails to Cameron at laserpodcast.com. Cameron with a C. Cameron with a C. Yeah, C-A-M-E-R-O-N. And laser with an L-A-S-E-R. Podcast with a P-O-D-C-A-S-T. As opposed to with a P-H in any one of those. Yeah, no P-H's in any of those. Come on, guys. This is really basic. Oh, uh, well done. Well done. That's a a chemistry joke right there. That's a wonderful joke. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for that. Thanks for joining us this week. Thanks for having us on your show. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thanks again for listening to Laser. If you have any comments, questions, or you want to suggest a topic for the show, you can leave a comment on the website or send us an email to contact at laserpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at LaserPodcast or search for us on Facebook or Google+. If you want to subscribe to our show on your mobile device, you can find us in the Stitcher Radio app. And we still aren't on iTunes when we're recording this, but hopefully we will be soon. Thanks again. See you next week. recording oh okay it's gonna be recorded forever Forever on forever yeah forever on tape like the voyager good segue yeah what does laser stand for let's agree science and engineering are rad (laughs) no but i mean the oh light amplified by stimulated emission of radiation (laughs) been bribed with beer to come Bribed. You guys provided the beer. <laughs> <laughs> no, one, no one needs I to know. Bring any. Okay. No one. So introductions. Okay. All right. Uh, well, this is the Laser Podcast, and I'm Art Bell, broadcasting from an undisclosed location in the South Pacific. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM. <laughs> That was entertaining. I was not expecting. No. <laughs> okay. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. A guest yeah. on the show. Okay. I can actually do this for real. <laughs> <laughs> I can always figure it out later and then just put it, splice it in. Uh, next week, we will be talking about some stuff. Right. What kind of stuff? I don't know. Interesting stuff, that's for sure. Sciencey stuff. Material stuff. Cool stuff. Cool. Maybe not hot like this week's stuff. Parabola. That one. That's all, folks. That happened on the last show, too. Whatever. Keeping up with your track record. Yeah, it's good. It's important. Once in every show.
to all you poor souls out there who have made it this far, <laughs> I apologize. Sincerely. You listen at your own risk.